this is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. This is a very special episode this week because we have a very special guest. Joining me this week is Brian Murray. Hello. Paul Jaceley. Hello. And Dennis Camp. Hey, hey. Dennis, thank you so much for being here this week. Super excited to talk to you about being a comic book creator, and quite honestly, just talking to a comic book creator makes this show feel more legit and awesome, so thank you for taking the time this week to join us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so I guess before we get the show started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're into, what comics you're writing and are working on, and all that jazz? Absolutely. Uh, so my name is Dennis Camp. Uh, I live in Brooklyn, New York with, uh, with my girlfriend and our 15 chickens and, uh, <laughs> okay. and I'm a comic book creator among other things. Um, I won the 2015 Miller world, uh, talent competition for my starlight entry. And that was published by image. Uh, I won the 2017, uh, ghost city comic award for best short story, uh, with my friend Romain Brune and his brother, Julian Brune, uh, for a, a short that's online called, uh, time is of the essence. And uh, I have, from Vault Comics, I have uh, a new series coming out called Maxwell's Demons with my friend and collaborator, Vittorio Astone, and lettered by uh, Edithia Bidikar. And so that's coming up uh, next month, and uh, I'm really excited to have it out there. Uh, that's pretty much it. Awesome. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I live in Brooklyn, too, but I don't have 15 chickens. Um, <laughs> I actually really just got to know, do you have like a little farm area that you raise these chickens? I mean, how do you do that in Brooklyn? <laughs> You'd be surprised. So it's actually, it's illegal to have, uh, to have, <laughs> to have cocks in Brooklyn. It's illegal to have the, the right. male chickens because they, they make noise. They crow in the morning, but it's legal to have female chickens. And we have like a, a backyard. We live in Crown Heights. So it's, it's like the quickly gentrifying, but it was still reasonable to get a house here uh, from my girlfriend. Gotcha. And so, uh, and so, yeah, we've got, we've got like a coop and a little fenced off run for them. That's like fenced off all the way around. And so really the only problem we have is with raccoons who are constantly trying to eat them and kill them. And so like, I'm in a constant battle to protect my children, my chicken. <laughs> and that's why I, to this day, I do not read rocket raccoon for that exact reason. Even though I'm a huge, <laughs> even though I'm a huge Al Ewing fan, I will not read that book because I literally, I spend like a solid amount of my time fighting raccoons off. Here in the book. <laughs> I gotta say, your life is fundamentally different from mine. Yeah. It's not. Oh man, it was not my idea to get the chickens, but I've raised them since they were chicks, like literally since from the egg, and so now I'm I'm like deeply attached to them. So like I, so like there's like a small war that goes on here. Like I I have traps laid out with like marshmallows for the raccoons. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. That is that is so That's crazy. Great. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just imagining you in the middle of the night, just like war paint on, looking for raccoons as they're like popping out of trash cans yeah. and stuff like that. That's with a head with a headlamp and everything. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, I've, I've got a real Home Alone thing going on, and please don't <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. I want to keep this fantasy alive. <laughs> got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Sorry, I I don't mean to tangent that much on the show. No. Um, Even though we always do. <laughs> We always do. Um, but I guess, uh, let me ask the question that I ask every single week to everyone that's on the show. What have you been reading? How have you been? Let's start with you, Brian. I've been good. Um, I haven't done a whole lot of reading. 
I've got a lot of stuff on the block that I'm trying to get to, but you know, it's been a busy weekend. We just had the Extra Life Gaming Marathon last night. Yeah. And so uh, everything is in a state of flux in my head right now. <laughs> but I did manage to sit down and check out um, Giant Days number, I want to say, 32. <clears throat> um, Giant Days is, as always, fantastic. I keep bringing it up, and I don't really have anything new to say about it. It's it's more of the same quality content that we've been getting from Giant Days for the last couple of years now. Um, if you're not already reading this series, I don't really know what to tell you to get you to read it, but you should. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> Go back to previous episodes and listen to us rant and rave about how fantastic this show is, or this comic is. Yeah, for sure. Um, I also managed to fit in uh, Hi-Fi Fight Club number three. It's it's a delight. It's just a lot of fun to watch this, like, I, I don't know, maybe it's stereotypical for a millennial to be super into, like, 90s culture. But I really dig on, like, the the kind of mall rats feel of it, you know, where mm-hmm. it's, it's this mm-hmm. 90s record store and... Everything is exactly as I remember, like, the kids I looked up to when I was growing up are, like, the main characters in this series. And so it's just a lot of fun for me to read that and feel, like, a sense of nostalgia, but also enjoy the whole, uh, you know, vigilante crime fighter aspect of it. Yeah, this this <laughs> comic is, like, high fidelity meets Fight Club in a weird way, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, like High Fidelity meets Fight Club meets Runaways or something like that. You know, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not the sort of aimless, malicious violence that Fight Club has. But, I mean, they also, you know, meet up in a basement and teach each other how to fight. So, <laughs> right. there are certain parallels that must be drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got some other stuff on the block that I'm trying to get to. I checked out Slam volume one from the library yes yes um <laughs> at, at, at mike's urging uh, i have not gotten to it yet i planned to and then i didn't then you played video games for 26 hours straight <laughs> uh, i did that was a thing that happened <laughs> for better or for worse yeah yeah um well cool i guess paul how have you been how have comic books been man well I, i'm doing really great today um i woke up early this morning Grabbed some breakfast with some friends, and then watched some New Japan Pro Wrestling, had a couple beers, so I'm doing pretty good on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, <laughs> Three o'clock a, on a Sunday, that's that's hey, a lot. I love not, it. Yeah, not a bad way to spend a Sunday morning is watching wrestling and drinking beers with pals. Mm-hmm. So, um, But I read some comics this past week. Um, I read Paper Girls number 17 by Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang, colors by Matt Wilson. And I think I'm finally understanding what's happening in this book. Um, this is a strange comic for me because every issue is very good, but as far as getting a sense of the overall story, I think it's been tough because it's very all over the map sometimes, and it's tough to get a feel of exactly what's going on. But I think the past couple issues, 16 and 17, did a good job sort of focusing the story in a weird way. So I think I finally understand what is happening, but I don't think I could explain it, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I really, I've gotten the same feeling on this book. It's very frustrating to hear you say that 
because yeah. I just stopped picking up this book. <laughs> oh no. This is the first issue I haven't gotten. <laughs> well, it might be time to jump back on because I think, <laughs> like I said, issue 17 really does a good job of like sort of saying, oh, here are the bad guys, at least in the eyes of the characters, and here are the good guys. And it's not exactly what you expected. So I don't know. I, I don't know how long they're expecting to run this series, but I feel like there's kind of finally getting the end game in, in sight now. I think I find that they're getting a hold, or at least letting the readers know what's going on. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah, 17 issues in, and they're finally <laughs> letting us know what's happening. So here's the story. I was, I'm not reading it uh, issue by issue, but Brian K. Vaughn is, is like the master of the episodic storytelling, I think, in comics. Like, he's got such a strong handle on... I, I love the... I, I read it in trades and love it, and Cliff is, is like a god in terms of art. But yeah. like... but. You're, it's totally like it's totally true that you can enjoy what he does without really fully seeing like the bigger picture, just because he does the smaller beats so well and it's so well thought out in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think this series, especially, I, there's it. It took a long time for the characters to really grow on me and develop. But I think there's kind of like a slow burn with the character development over the past you know seventeen issues, where now it's like they really have strong, identifiable characters for each individual character in the series. So. I'm really enjoying it. I think it, it, it was a slow burn and probably reading in trades a better idea than single issues, but it's a great series. Great series. Um, Black Bolt number seven by Saladin Ahmed and the fill-in artist Fraser Irving. Um, I know, Mike, you've got this on your list, so maybe well, I'll table it for now, but for now sure. I'll just say Fraser Irving is amazing. His artwork is just unlike anything else, and this issue <laughs> yeah. is a testament to that. God, what a beautiful comic. He is a god. He is like a. <laughs> I love what he does, and like he's only been getting better. I, I talked to him at New York Comic Con, I think two years ago, and uh, and he was he was he had like he told me that he had invented an entirely new way of coloring comics for his <laughs> book with Morrison, Annihilator, and so and I because yeah. I was like wow that like something about that I don't know how you do how you got those colors there because it it's it looks like the the book itself is radioactive. Like it's like he did something to the comic that is making it glow. <laughs> super casually, just super casually about how like, amazing he is. Uh. Oh man. Yeah. And that's definitely true of this series as well. This, this issue. Um, I mean, the previous artist, Christian Ward already had his own unique sense of color and that, that his issues were just neon and vibrant and garish in this beautiful way. And Fraser Irving continues that in his own unique way in this issue. So amazing, amazing art. Does he do the poly tip tip ticks like the the way that like you'll see like the after images of characters walking over the page instead of breaking it into panels? Because I love I love when he does that. Yeah, not in this issue so much, but there's a couple of things that are like almost a couple of faces he does are super photorealistic. So it's almost like collage like in a weird way. A couple of the pages. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's uh, actually that's a beautiful way to describe that. I, I couldn't. I don't think that I put that together, but now that hearing you say that, definitely felt like pasted together in a weird, like not in a weird way, but in a really creative way along with these big, huge portraits that he was doing throughout the issue. I'll, I'll talk about it more in a <laughs> yeah. second. Okay. Um, on the opposite side, I read Superman number 34, or as the cover of the issue I got said, celebrating 800 issues of Superman. So is it 34 or 800? I don't know. Um this book is kind of a complete mess and it's a real shame because when after Rebirth, I was really enjoying Superman with Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason. And 
what happened was that they had a, a really strong run, and then there was a couple fill-in issues with different writers and artists. And then when they came back to the book, they were basically being a writing team. So Gleason and Tomas were writing together with different artists filling in. And this issue, issue 34, is about Superman and Lex Luthor and Lois Lane and um, John Kent showing up on the planet Apocalypse. And Lex Luthor's trying to organize a rebellion against Darkseid. It's a complete mess. The artwork is super rushed. It lists, on the cover, it lists Ed Bennis and Jack Herbert as artists. On the inside of the book, it also lists Doug Monkey as a, an artist. So I can't tell who drew what. Everything feels sort of rushed and slapped together. And it's kind of a shame. Because, I mean, Superman should be a flagship book for DC. And I think it's kind of a... It's too bad that it just feels so such an afterthought at this point. So don't know how I don't know how much longer I'm be able to buy this book. That's kind of a bummer the, for an yeah. eight quote eight hundredth or issue exactly like, to see that kind of work. That's uh, that's such a bummer. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a real shame. Um, but I don't know. I have this faith in Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason, Gleason for some reason since the beginning of their run was so strong. So we'll see. They're both great. Mm-hmm. Like even exactly. Gleason uh, wrote his Robin run to Robin, son of Batman. And I thought that was phenomenal. I thought that was one of the best takes on Damian Wayne since Morrison himself. So that's a bummer to hear. I think they're throwing all of their like editorial weight behind the upcoming action milestone because action's hitting 1000 in exactly. next month. So like um, maybe they didn't, they just didn't have the, the juice to, to supercharge 800. Yeah, it kind of feels like they're in a holding pattern, which I guess is the way I'm thinking of it. Like, there's big stuff coming down the road, probably for this series, but right now it's like, yeah, action's getting more attention. But. I, I bet it has something to do with Doomsday Clock. Like, I bet they're, <laughs> they're like they're holding for that because I, I mean, I've heard that a lot of their plans are gonna are gonna flow out of that. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I can hold out hope, I guess, for that. So, um, and then I also read Mother Panic number twelve by Jody Hauser and Sean Crystal. I really, really enjoy this book. It's such a like, I use the term slow burn already, but I think it is a slow burn sort of book because similar to Paper Girls, it took a few issues for it to really kind of click for me. And this issue, I feel like a lot of these sort of story threads are drawn together. I get a better sense of the characters' uh, motivations. And of course, it's leading into the upcoming DC Young Animal crossover titled Milk Wars, which I have no idea what Milk Wars are going to be, <laughs> but I'm very excited. Um, so you have this series and then Cave Carson and Doom Patrol sort of like wrapped up their current stories. And then in January, the Milk Wars crossover with the main main continuity DC will start. So um, I have to say Mother Panic I really enjoy the way they use the different artists. So over the course of the 12 issues, there's been Tommy Lee Edwards, who started the, the series, uh, John Paul Leon, and then now Sean Crystal. They all have very distinct idiosyncratic styles, but they're all unique in a similar way, if that makes sense. They all fit together, and you can tell it's similar dynamics and characteristics, even though they're very visually different. And you I think like the, the way artists on that series were chosen specifically for that reason. I have to imagine because looking at these issues with Sean Crystal, I'm like, yeah, I, the character's still identifiable. It's not radically different than John Paul Leon. It's just the finishes and details are a little more refined as opposed to a completely radical. All those guys are friends as well. Okay. Yeah, that makes total oh. sense. Makes total sense. Yeah. That all like, so the series has a continuity visually, even though every arc has a different look, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's awesome. 
<laughs> See, now I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm only buying some of these books, these okay. young animal books in like yeah. trades. <laughs> so I don't know how I'm going to catch up for this big crossover. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I, I, is it flowing into the issues or is it like, a, I think it's a separate thing, right? The crossover? Yeah. It's a series of one shots of crossovers. So you'll have like oh. Doom Patrol crossing over with uh, Justice League for like this one issue, one shot. And then I think uh, Mother Panic's crossing over the Batman for like a Batman Mother Panic one shot. So it's like that. It's not. It's not in the actual series themselves. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. So then I, whew, I don't have to worry so much. Good. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, Dennis, what did you read? What have you been up to? What have you been? How, how have you been? I mean, like, how have I been? Just in general. I've been yeah. Great. Everything. I've been great. Uh, just you know, with when you're writing. Writing comics kind of takes a lot of my free time these days, so I'm not necessarily caught up week to week, but I still I still got to get my fix like whenever I can. So like a lot, I find a lot of my reading kind of corresponds to either stuff I'm super interested in or stuff that is relevant to books that I'm writing for whatever reason. So okay. uh, like I I'm working with uh, I'm working with a artist who is a very painterly style kind of a. Uh, Dave McKean and and Bill Sinkevich style. So I'm uh, I'm rereading a bunch of their stuff right now, especially Electra Assassin, which has been with Frank Miller, uh, mm -hmm. which is phenomenal. I don't know if you guys have read it, but it is a like this crazy tongue in cheek sort of send up of ninjas and robots and Shield, and it's got just the most absurd plot twists and over the top dialogue and over the top narration but it's also really beautifully told because it's Bill Sienkiewicz and uh, and a great command of the form, like a lot of really interesting issue by issue structures to get information across. But like, it's also just got like, uh, Nick Fury is just sitting in what is a giant handgun, but like it's so, he's constantly holding guns that are at least as big or bigger than him. But like also occasionally <laughs> when he's like, while he is while he's giving uh, exposition, he'll just be sitting in a giant handgun. Like it's shaped just like a normal handgun, except he's like right where the he's right where uh, you might cock the the thing back. And so and just shooting random stuff for fun because that's what what else would you what if what else would you do if you have free time and you're Nick Fury? You just sh right. shoot. <laughs> uh, and so, it's, but it's really really. Uh, it's, so it's really, really over the top and it's kind of, it seems to be kind of a, uh, making fun of himself and making fun of a lot of the stuff that he, that Frank Miller popularized like ninjas and, and, uh, and robots and cyborgs and whatnot, but it's done just really, really well. And so I've been, I've been reading that and then a bit more, like more current has been, I've been reading, uh, Tom King and Mitch Sherrod's, uh, Mr. Miracle, which has mm -hmm. been phenomenal as well. Uh, you know, Tom King. I read almost everything that he does because he's, uh, I think he's doing some of the most formally rigorous work in comics. Like he's, he's very interested in more interested. He's more interested in how you tell a story than what the story is. And so you, there's always just a lot to get from his work in that regard. And so his use of the nine panel grid and his use of like uh, overlays, he does the thing where he's taking some of the captions from the original Mr. Miracle series uh, by Jack Kirby, and he's put, he's overlaying them uh, over his work or over Mitch Jared's work, and it kind of it has a certain narrative purpose that isn't quite clear yet, but has become more and more clear. And it's just really, really smart. It's just very, very smart and very, very emotionally rich work. You know, it's very. He has done. I love the New Gods a lot, and he is mm -hmm. he has done something that's kind of impossible, which is or a lot of impossible for a lot of people, 
which was modernize them. And that doesn't mean, it means changing some trappings and keeping some trappings, but fundamentally the things that he's dealing with, the new gods were, were a tool to talk about the world as Kirby saw it and as Kirby lived it. So it was, it was <clears> talk <throat> about Vietnam and the hippie movement and all these other things and tyranny. And uh, Tom King is kind of doing the same thing to talk about our current moment, which I think is just excellent and, and necessary and, and exactly what has been missing from a lot of the uh, New God reboots, which have just been <clears throat> a little bit slavish to, to the Jack Kirby trappings and not at, all, uh, not at all interested in what Jack Kirby was doing sort of beneath the surface. And so <clears throat> I've, I've really been loving that. And then um, also Wildstorm, uh, The Wildstorm from Warren Ellis, which is kind of, and uh, I forget who is, who the artist on that is, but he is, they're both doing a phenomenal job. And uh, it's kind of interesting to see Ellis reimagine a world that he already kind of reimagined back in the 90s like right right he basically built it right i mean previous to him not to not to crap on any of the great work that was done because there was a lot of really good work but it, it was a it was sort of a take on it was a mishmash of marvel and dc tropes with a bit of a sci-fi edge and he really he really uh enhanced that and and just essentially built it and and created a launching point where other great creators could come and do some of their best work, uh, including, you know, Ed Brubaker did a lot of his best work there, I think, or a lot of his early work there, at least. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> it's been fun to watch him play with those, all those same sort of cornerstones, but then mix them up a little bit. And I don't know, I really don't know how enjoyable it would be for somebody who isn't familiar with the Wildstorm universe at all. But at least for me, who love that stuff, you know, who love that old Stormwatch stuff to authority to all the rest, it's been it's been excellent and just really fun to watch and really fun to read. And every issue has been kind of different. And again, formally interesting, kind of interested in, in grid structures and uh, really lo-fi tamped down uh, espionage stuff. So I highly recommend it. Yeah, that's as someone who didn't read Stormwatch and The Authority and has had it on his list for probably upwards of seven years, I decided to just jump into this book mm. and I'm absolutely loving it. Great. But it's now making me want to go back and read all that old stuff just to get the extra morsels that I may not be getting having not read that, you know? Totally. And the, there's all these kinds of like, there's tons of Easter eggs both with for the Wildstorm universe and then also for the DC universe. I don't really know. I don't I guess his idea is that he's he's bringing in a little bit more of the DC stuff. And you can see that with uh, with the spinoff he did uh, with uh, Brian Hill, uh, <laughs> yeah. Michael Cray, which has like which the main villain is essentially a green arrow, Oliver Queen, but completely psychotic and played. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, what would he's, so that's really interesting. Both of these things are interesting because it's kind of taking like the Ultimates model of what Marvel did with Ultimates and taking it even further, right? Like not just these superheroes in this world taken in, in a, a more realistic world are just psychopaths. Like they're, these are just disturbed creatures. Right. right. Uh, and, and I love it. I think that's, that's just the kind of, you know, Warren Ellis being fearless about playing with these icons in, in new ways. And there's not a lot of, I don't think there's a lot of people that would necessarily have the, uh, the balls to do that. So it's great. Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's awesome. I've been loving the Wildstorm stuff. Um, I, I, I'm pretty much, pulled in i'm gonna read it all because i'm a warren ellis sucker i'll read anything that he does at this point same um same i love his work but 
Yeah, so um, I guess for me, really quick, um, I read Iceman number seven, which is a continuation of this whole Marvel legacy thing um, with the X-Men and every other book that they're doing. Specifically, I've been just seeing it in the X-Men book, so I just assume it's an X-Men thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the This this issue was really nice. Uh, issue number seven, Bobby Drake goes on a date, which, you know, we're getting into classic soap opera teen drama stuff, even though Bobby's like 30-something, <laughs> 30X, essentially, because he's been alive for 40, 50 years, but he's 30X. Um, um, he's finally going out with some guy, and then, of course, these fake Sentinels attack, and what happens? Well, all of his buddies that are in the Champions, which includes Angel, Hercules, Ghost Rider, and Darkstar, um, they have to fight these fake Sentinels. Um, and there's some fun little story beats, and I think what I really love about this series is, and I say it every time that this this book comes out, is that Cena Grace, like, he really knows how to manage the drama in the book, and I think he's been doing a really good job of amping up the action to make it feel like a classic X-Men book. And so the this this story's been really really smart in that direction and the end of the issue is really really great and i guess the thing that i forgot to mention last month was the that the the reason why Bobby Drake is hanging out with the old champions team is because this is big spoilers for secret empire i guess so turn your ears off if you don't want spoilers but someone died and her name is Natasha Romanoff oh. and it's pretty sad I, I guess I didn't know that that happened so it, when it showed up in this yeah. book I was like oh okay I guess that's the thing that's going on um, but ultimately this book has been very good um, to this to see a book that has a very positive portrayal of you know a gay character that is the this flagship character in the Marvel Universe and I think that there was a lot of backlash when this book originally um, like started in the sense that I guess it wasn't the book itself, but it was the whole outing of Bobby Drake and how like this big change for a character. But I think Cena Grace has taken it in stride and make it really work in the universe. And I think he's establishing a very positive role model for people out there who probably didn't have one um, outside of maybe like a North star or something like that in the X-Men universe where there's, He's a gay man, but he's, his whole life is is just tragedy, whereas in terms of Bobby Drake, Iceman, he is a gay man, and his life is pretty okay, and that's that's saying something in a superhero book. Um, he's got problems with his parents, and of course, he's an X-Men character, so the world hates him, but overall, <laughs> things seem to be going okay for him. As far as X-Men go, he's doing good. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Did you guys read Midnighter? I did not, no. No. So that's just a, I mean, that was by Steve Orlando and uh, it's a great, it's another great book with a, with a gay lead and kind of uh, not necessarily aspirational because he does kill people very violently and he's, he, and, and <laughs> gleefully as well. But like, he's mm -hmm. also a very, you know, in his own way, he's a positive character. And, and, and I think that was an important book too, because it showed a, a certain diversity in outlook and, and, and temperament, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not just people people of whatever sexuality aren't just one thing they can be a lot of different things and again going back to warren ellis's creation of of the midnighter like i think that was a pretty daring piece of of work to say you know this can be kind of like a, a pretty sadistic batman who is mm -hmm. who is gay and and really happy you know really happy about all of that and it's not there's no cognitive dissonance there right right um, let's see, I also read Barbarous, which is, actually I'll talk about that in a second. The only other thing I want to say about Black Bolt number seven, um, is Fraser Irving's art, I think, I think Denny, or Dennis, you described it, like, perfectly, um, his art looks radioactive, and that was the one thing that I felt throughout the whole book. It just, there was this glow about everything. And I'm reading this book digitally on my computer, and it felt mm. like it was glowing brighter than a normal book. 
And I, that is such a cool effect. I, I don't think I've seen it in any other book before outside of work that Fraser Irving's done. So, like, kudos to that guy. He made a kick-ass book that was creepy and super well-crafted and put together in a way that, like, I felt the emotion of every character. And that's, like, just from the pictures. Like, you could have gotten rid of the text bubbles and all the, the dialogue and captions in the book, and I would have understood what these characters were feeling from panel to panel. And I think that's really hard for some artists. And Fraser Irving has no problem with it, and it's just really impressive. Um, but yeah, finally, I guess the last thing I read um, was a, a webcomic slash comic called Barbarous. Um, this is by Yuko Ota and Ananth Hirsch. Uh, Ananth also wrote a book that I talked about last week called Buzz, and with the colors in this book by J.N. Weedle. This is like a, it's a page a week-ish type story, and a friend of mine recommended it to me on a whim, and like, hey, if you're looking for a good webcomic, check this out. And then I only found out that there's two chapters out, which means it's like 44 pages to read, and I feel like I'm missing something large in my life because this book is so, so good. Um, if you're interested, I would say go check out Johnny Wander. The story is... It's about it's like a strange world where magic exists, and there's a magic school dropout who, uh, or I don't know if she's a dropout or if she's in college and kind of just like taking a semester off or something. Um, and she needs somewhere to live, she needs somewhere to work, and she stumbles upon this boarding house uh, that kind of takes her in, where she's going to be the super, I guess, to take care of things in the place. And so there's like a lot of really interesting, well-crafted three-dimensional characters that exist, and all of this gets established in like I said, forty-some pages. Um, and I was really, really taken in by this. So if you're if you're looking for a good webcomic, I guess, or you're looking for a book, a nice book that is just a, it's just a good time, I would recommend Barbarous. It's out there. It's fantastic. Um, JohnnyWander.com, I think, is what it is. It's on their website. Um, so, anyways, let's uh, let's move on. Let's talk about comic books that are coming out this upcoming week. Comic books are released on November eighth, two thousand seventeen. What's everybody reading? Let's start with you, Paul. Uh, I am excited for Redlands number four. Um, I've already mentioned the series a couple times on the show, and I think I used the comparison to that first season of True Detective to explain the book. Yeah, and I think that still works, although Redlands is much creepier if that make if that's possible, and even more supernatural at this at this time. Uh, issue three added a whole new wrinkle to this series about you know this group of basically witches who are involved with uncovering a serial murder. Issue three added another wrinkle where we basically have a crocodile man involved and is connected okay. to these <laughs> these witches. And I, I just, I don't know, I just love it. I love the sort of swampy, backwoods, creepy vibe to the story. I love that it's, it's, it's a sexy book. You know, it's not afraid to be sort of erotic and in that sense, uh, but never feels exploitive, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I like that there is a mystery involved. Issue three sort of ends with a, the pages of like newspapers, news clippings about the legend of this crocodile man in the swamps. So it's like this mix of supernatural, myth, and real life, magic, and murder. It's just a, such a unique book. And um, Vanessa Del Rey's artwork is just dark and moody and atmospheric. Jordi Belair, I think, is crafting a great story in, with her writing. And I think this could be a really special book. I just It's dealing with a lot of unique themes and ideas. And it looks like nothing else on the shelves. So I, I'm very, very excited by this series. 
This is a very important question. This crocodile man, is this Mm -hmm. a man who is part crocodile or is this sort of a uh, crocodile Dundee sort of guy? No, no, no. I I think (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. I thought you were going to ask, is it a man who is a part crocodile or is it a crocodile Mm -hmm. who has become like a man? Become man. That's a much better question. Yeah. There's Touching no the philosophy I, of the thing. Well, I, cause I always have this argument about the Ninja Turtles. And I, what I found out was that it's both, depending on which version that you, depending yeah, on which version yeah. you read. Right. Well, I, I think at this point, that's up in the air. There's not just the definitive answer whether this is a crocodile who took on human-like qualities or a human that's lived in the swamp so long that he's become part crocodile. So could be either one. It's just it's that that sort of mysterious backwoods swamp myth come to life. We'll we'll have to read issue four to find out. I guess <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, what are you excited for this week? For me this week, it's got to be Runaways number three. Um, not not a surprising take, <laughs> I'm sure, for anybody who's been following the podcast. I was a huge fan of the original. I'm a huge fan of this new series, especially this uh, this issue. Um, Based on what I've seen, it's going to feature uh, Carolina Dean's return, which I'm very excited about because she was sort of my favorite character from the original Runaways. You know, she's got this this light-based power, and she's a very kind of light, positive person who basically got shit on by the entire universe for a while. Yeah. And from from the summary that i've read it sounds like she's off at college and things are finally going well for her so i can't wait to see her long dead friend show up on her doorstep and ruin her life (laughs) (laughs) um mostly because i don't want any of my my comic book favorites to ever be happy but that's probably some of my own shit i gotta work through (laughs) no that's just storytelling that's you gotta kill you gotta (laughs) if not kill you gotta at least you know mess with your darlings yeah, ma'am at least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I've been loving this book too, Brian. I'm right there with you. This is uh this is well it's a, it's a it's a book that I didn't think that I needed in my life and the fact that they're just picking up and kicking it off from where things kind of left off with a bit of a time gap makes me very very happy still. Even even two issues in, I'm like this is this is how this book is supposed to be done. I'm so happy they chose to go this direction. And it's made me really want to go back and like find out what these characters have been up to because <laughs> read all those crossover event issues that you decided to ignore. <laughs> I know. Well, at the at the end of issue 2, they opened up a box and found Victor Mancha's head in it. Oh yeah. Uh, Victor Mancha, the son of Ultron. From Vision? Um, off of Vision, probably? Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Because I, I just read Vision a month or two back, and so, like, thinking about how cool it was for me, sort of knowing, like, what they don't know about what Victor has been up to, just really <laughs> makes me want to go back and, like, track these characters through whatever stories they've been showing up in. Mm-hmm. We're going to need one of those big yarn boards for to track all that <laughs> stuff so you can make sure to get the timeline correct. Yeah, that's not something I already have. That's <laughs> uh, cool. Well, uh, Dennis, what are you excited for this upcoming week? Uh, so I got a couple things. Uh, I want to uh, echo the praise for Redlands, and also a little bit of a plug is that I write for a uh, like a comics craft magazine called Panel by Panel, uh, and issue two of that focused on Redlands. Uh, 
basically we went through there. There's an interview with Jordy and and Vanessa and a bunch of pieces that kind of analyze the first issue and talk about what it does and how it does it from a craft perspective. And then also, you know, one writer writes from a feminist perspective, and I write a little bit kind of in between. Um, and so if you're, if you like that book, uh, I would highly recommend you pick it up. It's a digital magazine. You can pick it up for two bucks and, uh, it'll give you maybe a little bit more insight. And I think actually issue two of Redlands ran an ad for it. So, uh, Jordy's been very supportive. Um, and I love that book. I love what they're doing there. And I'm really, that's awesome, dude. I'm really yeah. excited to see more of what they're doing, but like, I think Jordy is really smart about how she uses, uh, the comics form and she's got like a really strong story to tell. And. I mean, yeah, I'm really, I, I fully agree that you, everybody should pick that up when it comes out. Um, and then the other thing that I'm excited about coming up is my buddy Hassan, who he runs um, a, uh, he does a YouTube series called Strip Panel Naked uh, that also talks about uh, comics craft. And he's, yeah. he's running a Kickstarter now for a book that I've watched develop slowly with uh, his collaborator, Juni Ba, that's called Felix and McGabber. And so technically it's, you can if you if you contribute now you can get the first digital uh issue or chapter uh right Im immediately and then they hopefully they'll be doing more and i think that's just it's just another really fun beautiful book gorgeous completely gorgeous again it does some really fun things with uh the comics form comics craft and how they use letters and how they do uh triptychs and all these other tricks that you can only do with comics and uh and it's just a lot of fun. It's a it's a kind of an all ages story that ha that looks at kids from an adult perspective, sort of with the knowingness of an adult. And it's about toxic mas masculinity. And I'm really excited for more. So I'm hoping they they're able to do more. That sounds great. That's cool. Uh, we'll find a link and plug that just just because that's that's awesome stuff. Awesome. Uh, well, for me, um, I'm super excited for Slam the Next Jam number three. If you're into roller derby, and you should be, and you also like comic books, obviously you're listening to this show, you should read this comic. Uh, Slam uh, Volume 1, which Brian was talking about earlier, um, is the first arc in the story um, covering, you know, where you meet the, the two main characters and how they basically move through the roller derby world, um, joining very, joining two different teams, and you get their two experiences and a couple other characters' experiences in the roller derby world, uh, making friends and enemies and frenemies and all that kind of stuff, and Slam the Next Jam is a continuation of that book. Um, issue three, um, I, I, there's nothing really more to say about like what's actually happening in the book. I just am excited for this book. I'm glad that it's still coming out. I was really bummed when the first volume ended um, because I thought that was the end of the story. And ultimately, the fact that there's more of this book just makes me super excited. So I just want to say, Pamela Raban and Mar uh, Marina Julia, you guys are doing fantastic work. I love this book. I just love the fact that there is a comic book about roller derby, and I get very, very excited every month when this book comes out. So that's, that's all I'll say that's about great. it. Before we start the second half of the show, I want to remind everyone that there are, as of the release of this episode, three days left to back our Kickstarter. If you haven't gotten a t-shirt, if you haven't gotten a sticker, if you haven't sent out the cash to say, hey, I want to be on an episode of I Read Comic Books, now is the time to do that. You have until November 10th at 9pm to back this Kickstarter. So go out there, put your funding down, help us get to Emerald City Comic Con, help us give Xander some love, send some love to 
Infinity Shred, who is the best band in the universe. Go to ircbpodcast.com slash KS2017 or just search for I Read Comic Books on Kickstarter. Find the Kickstarter, do some pledging, get yourself some cool swag. And, you know, we, we really appreciate everyone out there who's who's helped donate it so far. We're, we just got past our first stretch goal. We're trying to get to the second one. We want to give everyone some free pins. So go out there and do that today. IRCBpodcast.com slash KS2017. So now that the plugging's all done and we did that whole thing, Dennis, we're really excited that you're on the show. I'm so happy that you were you decided to say yes and we were like, hey, please be on this comic book podcast. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we wanted to talk to you today about what it's like being a comic book writer. You have a book coming out. Could you tell us a little bit about your book? And then we're going to just ask you some general questions about being an actual legitimate comic book writer. <laughs> well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Mike. I'm super excited to be here. I really appreciate it. So yeah, I, I have a book called Maxwell's Demons, which is coming out of Vault Comics uh, later this month. And it is the story of Maxwell Max, who is the greatest mind of his generation and maybe one of the greatest minds in human history. And uh, he's one of the, he's a, bo a boy born before his time and mm -hmm. one of those rare individuals who comes to define that time. And uh, I think as you go through the series, you'll see kind of what that means and will constantly reevaluate what that means to be somebody who is sort of great in the historical sense, one of the great figures of history, right? Uh, and so in, in the first issue, it kind of starts as he's this super genius who has turned his stuffed animals into sentient beings and has built a door to other universes in his closet. And he goes into other universes and kind of adventures with his stuffed animal toys and uh, just through his sheer genius. And it kind of goes in different directions from there. Uh, and every issue is a self-contained done-in-one issue. So every issue is a full story. And each issue takes place at a different point in Max's life. So they are told, they are arranged non-chronologically and kind of more in a more artistic way. So the first issue takes place literally thousands of years after the second issue. And you know, in one issue, he might be a little boy. In another issue, he might be an older man. In another issue, he's Whoa. a teen. And, and, and there's no, there's, so there, there are reasons for that structure and we can get into that later. But uh, fundamentally, what I'm trying to do with that is I'm trying to surprise the reader, frankly. There's, there's very few, I think that because of how inured we are to storytelling, we kind of understand after an issue one, there's a certain setup and there's certain setups and then inevitably there are payoffs or extensions of those setups, right? The, there's a causal chain that, that has to happen. And so after an issue one, you can be surprised by issue two, but you kind of more or less know what's going to happen. Uh, at least you, you don't know the specifics, but there's a certain there's a certain family of things that can happen after an introduction. And so what I'm trying to do with this series and what we're trying to do with this series is literally, I want, I don't want you to know what's going to happen next issue. I want you to have no idea what's coming. Uh, and I want you to be surprised because I don't think, I think that it's very difficult to surprise people in who are reading, who have read a lot of comics. It's very difficult to surprise people who consume a lot of stories. And that's a lot of us. And uh, I wanted that sense of kind of disorientation when you're when you're reading an issue two and an issue three and an issue four and uh and yeah so and i also really want i also really like the idea of having an issue that is complete in and of itself you know that i think there's a bit of a there's a certain five six story structure or five six issue structure for each story now that is mm -hmm. fine and a lot gives a lot of opportunities but it's 
it kind of is a detriment to somebody who's reading issue by issue because you're not really taking into account the format in which you're writing. Uh, and, and, and as a reader, it can be a little bit, it can feel a little bit like you're getting one fifth or one sixth of a story instead of you're getting a story, you know? So I really wanted to feel people like, oh, you, you got one issue, you got issue two or issue three, and you got an, a story when you read it, you were, you were done. And the reason you're coming back is because you want to know what happens next, not necessarily because you feel like you've been ripped off and the only way to get your money's worth is to buy all five issues. Oh man. Okay. So <laughs> now I have 500 more questions. Um, but <laughs> the first one, the first question that I have, I mean, okay. So I think the thing that I'm getting or taking away from this the most is something that I think we talked about. We've talked about a hundred times over on this show is the problem with modern comics is that you can't just pick up a number two or a number eight in a series <laughs> and get the story. You have to go all the way back to a number one. It's like, it's like watching modern television. You can't just pick up an episode and know what's going on because it's not <laughs> self-contained. It sounds to me like you wanted to, you're tr you're, actively trying to change the format for your book in specific so that anyone could just say, oh, look, here's number three. And any person out there could say, hey, I know you haven't read one and two, but if you read number three, you're going to get it completely. And you won't need number one and two. And if you want, you can go back and get those, but it's not necessary. Is that kind of the goal there? That's absolutely the goal. What I want to, I want to reward people for reading more rather than punishing them for reading less. So, <laughs> so, so, well, every issue will give you a certain story, but the reading the whole series, you'll start to see that there's some a larger meta story that's kind of developing. It's a it's a much bigger web or a pattern, and you'll start to see you'll each if you read each issue uh, in sequence, you'll kind of what we're doing is we're trying to get you to reevaluate our main character every time. So at the beginning of issue one, you kind of think he's one thing, and then hopefully by the end, you might wonder if he's something else. And Issue two, you'll be completely thrown for a loop as to what you're reading and who this character is and what what his you know future is going to be. In issue three, you'll you know come back and you'll kind of again like you'll again have to reevaluate what it is you're reading and, and what kind of character he is. And I want that because I want I want there to be a benefit to reading every issue and reading it in sequence. I think that's that's there's a certain psychological benefit to reading them in that way. Like I'm structuring the story in, in ways that will, you'll get an extra added value if you read them that way. But if you don't, if you only get, if you're only able to get your hands on issue three, then you'll, then you'll get to enjoy a done in one story that is complete in and of itself. And I think is pretty strong. And then if like, if by some chance you're, you're just never like, I don't know, God forbid something happens and you die after issue four, you won't feel like, Oh, like running through your last, your last thought won't be, oh, I wonder what happened in issue five. Like, I wonder how that story ended. I got screwed out of the rest of this. Or, you know, these days it's more and more likely that there might be some kind of nuclear war with North Korea. And again, like it would be a tragedy. Right. It would be a tragedy if you only got four fifths of a story or three fifths of a story. And so mm -hmm. I want you, it's true. Like the more you read, the more you'll see that there's this kind of much bigger meta story that's developing and, and is you know, super, I mean, I'm not going to say super complex because I made it and that's kind of arrogant, but it is pretty, <laughs> it, it is, it is complex and, and it is surprising. And, and the more you read, the more you'll see that kind of emerging, but not necessarily in a traditional linear or chronological way. It'll just be kind of like patches here and there. And the more, I, I have about like 30 to 35 issues planned. If we get there, it would be great. And you'll see something that's very intricate and hints of its ending are in the first issue and, and whatnot. But uh, but if we stop at issue five, you'll have gotten what I think will feel like both a complete story and five complete stories. 
And uh, I, I just think, like going back to what you're saying about television, I, I think that there is a real danger to that kind of storytelling, that kind of epic mm -hmm. frame storytelling. Uh, like uh, uh, Game of Thrones is is the model, and and it's popularized it for good reason. It does it well, but. The thing about Game of Thrones is that if you if you watch anything less than a season, you're kind of shit out of luck. I mean, there's not there's not a lot of payoffs in those individual episodes, and I don't I think that you have to be willing to invest in a show like that. And so if you're not if you if for whatever reason you don't feel like the same thing was true of Westworld. I watched Westworld. I watched Westworld because I got deathly ill and and couldn't get out of bed for like three days, and so I had nothing to do but watch TV. And so I watched it, and it was good. Like once I got to that last episode, I thought, wow, that was that was pretty strong. But I, I didn't want to get involved, and I didn't think I had time for it. And if I hadn't gotten sick that way, I wouldn't have ever invested the ten hours that it took for me to feel like, oh, I got something worth it at the end of this. And so I just feel like. When you when you're making stories like that, when you're when you're when you have a serialized medium and you're you're intentionally designing it so that people won't be satisfied until the very end, there's a very good chance that people are gonna you're gonna lose people right from the very start. And right. and but when you build up an ending where everything becomes dependent on this kind of epic ending that ends exactly the way that they want it to end. Well, that's, I think that's a dangerous game because everybody makes their own predictions and has their own sort of ideas of what the perfect ending is. And you're kind of ruining it. I mean, whatever your ending is, you're not going to satisfy a lot or even the, the majority of people. And so sure. part, of what I'm, <laughs> yeah. part of what I'm trying to do with this kind of non-chronological structure is that because there's all of these gaps in between the issues, you kind of, as a reader, you 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 do the work to fill those in yourself kind of to at least to some extent maybe there'll be some reference to something that happens but you'll be kind of trying to figure out well what happened in this interim to make this character change so much from the last time i saw them and so in that regard you, it becomes a kind of participatory event uh reading becomes a participatory action for you it becomes everybody gets to kind of put a little bit of themselves into the book um and most of my favorite writers in comics and out uh, leaves a lot of space for readers to put themselves into the work. And I think that's really important. And so that's kind of what we're going for. So that raises an interesting question in my mind, because that idea of an individual issue functioning on its own, but there being a through line or a larger story being teased, that feels like a very, like, I use the term retro, I guess, but a retro way of writing comics. Because I'm old enough to remember buying comics off the shelves at the grocery store and you didn't get every issue, just got random issues here and there. But going back as an adult and rereading a lot of that stuff from the, the early 80s, you can see that some writers really took their time to progress a larger narrative over the course of the issues where while the individual issues were sort of self-contained one and done stories. So are there any classic comics or particular writers from that era that you look toward or that inspired you? Or is it something else that made you think of that comics album. uh yeah i mean the there were there are some that inspire me in general not specifically for this book but mm -hmm. i think what you're talking about uh levitz did a lot of that in legion of superheroes and right. claremont did on the x-men as well and uh you know i don't know if you've ever seen the way that levitz would 
plan out his comics, but he has something mm -hmm. called a Levitt's plot where, you know, he has got, it's just a giant chart and Hickman does all of his books this way too, where mm -hmm. it's like a giant chart with the number of issues on the number issue number on the top. And then all these characters uh, on the side. And then you kind of say what happens to each character and where they go and what, you know, what the plots are. And so huh. you've got like a plot and B plot and C plot and you rotate through, you know, your A plot is the main plot. And then you've got the subplots, B plot and C plot. Um, mm -hmm. That is one way of doing it. And I think that that is a brilliant way of doing it if you have confidence that you have the space to make that satisfying. And, and, right. and, it, and when it comes off, it's great. Um, you, the, the, the done in ones, that was most of comics. And I loved mm -hmm. those done in ones. But I, I do see why people moved away from it because there's a certain, there's a limit, there's an upper limit to the complexity of any given story if you have to contain right. it within 20 to 24 or 24 pages. Um, right. And so I, I do see why, and also maybe people didn't want to come up with that many plots. I mean, some of those plots got pretty absurd or premises <laughs> right. got pretty absurd, but, uh, but I, first of all, I really embraced the absurd. So I really dig that. And, um, and like, I just, I feel like there's a balance. There's a, there's a way of doing, of doing both, which is, you know, mm -hmm. I, and I, to your point about, uh, creators who do that, I think that. Alan Moore and uh, Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison all have done that in in various works of theirs. I think uh, mm -hmm. if you've ever read um, San or Swamp Thing from Alan Moore, there's kind of a done in one feel to a lot of those books, and but they all yeah. kind of coalesce into something bigger. And uh, <clears throat> Grant, Grant Morrison does it all the time, but one mm -hmm. of the ones that sticks out is Seven Soldiers. A lot of those uh, stories took place and were done in ones, and then they yeah. functioned as a mini series, and then they functioned further as a mega series, right? <laughs> exactly. Like a 30, 30 issue mega series. Um, and so all of that stuff was, uh, all that stuff was super influential to me in general. I love those creators and I love all those properties. Um, but, uh, for this in particular, there's, it was really more, uh, my own sort of worry or dissatisfaction, sort of worry about my own work and how it would be received and then worry about, or, and then dissatisfaction with some of the stuff that I was reading, which just, it felt very slight. And I didn't think, I didn't see any reason why anybody would, would invest in my work <laughs> without being given a reason to in the first issue. Um, and so, but I, I, I mean, <laughs> to go off of that, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know if you mean like getting a publisher on board or something like that, but if you're talking about readers, um, getting your readers invested, um, let me just say the epilogue to the first issue, and I don't want to spoil anything, right. like, right, because this book isn't out yet yeah. or anything. The epilogue to the first issue, like, broke my heart in so many ways that I'm like, oh, I good. need to know more about what's happening. Like, <laughs> holy shit, dude, that, you crushed me, and yeah. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that I mean that was part of we can talk a little bit about it. Like you know, the Max's dad is is sort of abusive and an alcoholic, and and part of the point of this series in general is kind of I want people to be reevaluating the work and reevaluating the characters uh, constantly. And so I think I don't know for sure, but I think by the end of the issue, you kind of reevaluate what Max is and and what he's going to be, and then hopefully, yeah. you know, in the at the for the first start or for the first main story. Max's father seems to be a bit cookie cutter and and kind of uh, childish, to be honest with you, like a childish sort of fairy tale evil dad. And the goal with that, with the goal with the backup, was just to make him a little bit more real and a little bit more human. And there's a so much. The first issue is really told 
through Max's perspective. And through Max's perspective, your father is just one thing. I think your parents are always just one thing. They're gods or they're, yeah. they're devils. But like, that's how you see the world. And even a, a really brilliant boy like Max doesn't have that kind of social complexity yet, that, mm -hmm. that understanding. So then for the backup, we take it into, into his dad's realm and or from his dad's point of view. And we kind of see that no, like there's reasons for this. And, and even he understands that what he's doing is awful, but that doesn't mean that you can stop it. And I, and I think that growing up is so much kind of a disillusionment of, with your parents. Like at first they're gods and then they become, you know, demons or devils that are just there to, to screw you and, and not let you have fun with your friends. And then at somewhere along the way you realize, no, like these are just like, I mean, maybe that was just me. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, I'm right there with you. You're, you're, you're telling my story. And then at some point you realize these are just people who are doing their best and they, they did the best that they could, but they were dealing with their own shit. And it's not, you know, they were very imperfect. And, and so I wanted the issue to have a, a little bit of that. And I, I actually wrote the pitch of, for the series. We just did the 19-page story that is the main story. And then Vault said, like, well, we, let's – Let's give it as many pages as you want, but let's standardize it. And I said, well, I want to get as many pages as I can because yeah. one stories are hard and I don't mm -hmm. want to, yeah. I don't want to be limited to 19 pages every time. And so, uh, and so they said, okay, well then we, we got to do a, something for the, the first issue. And so I wrote that back up and I was really happy to do that. And we expand on that later in the series, not necessarily in issue two, but uh, you know, it's, it's definitely coming. There's, there's a sense of, if not resolution, a bit more interaction there. So. And that's something I really enjoyed reading issue one was seeing the world through Maxwell's point of view, because when you first get into the first issue, it's unclear if what's happening is real or if this is just a kid with an active imagination. Oh boy. And I really yeah. enjoyed that about it, that we were sort of right up until the end, we were left unsure if what we're seeing is, you know, a something like a superhero origin story or if we're seeing you know the the kind of narrative that a lot of sad lonely kids like myself are very familiar with like living in our own heads and i thought that was you know incredibly well done because it's it's very hard to pull that off in such a way that feels satisfying instead of it just being a you know potentially like an it was all a dream reveal or something like that mm -hmm. But I think you, you, you definitely, you put in the work for it and it shows in this, uh, this issue. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely an intention from the very beginning was to keep, kind of give it like a Pan's Labyrinth feel. And mm -hmm. uh, I, didn't want, I didn't want to say anything for sure, you know, uh, up, like you say, up until the end. And later issues kind of, you know, uh, give up the story. But at least for, the, for this, I wanted it to be a little unclear. And again, so that you're constantly on your toes kind of trying to evaluate what is this story about? What is this character about? What, where is it mm -hmm. going? So I'm super happy to hear that it works. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna bring up that point too, Brian. I, I'm glad that you did. Um, but let's uh, let's kind of shift gears a little bit. Um, I'm curious about how you got involved with Vault, and like you said, there was a pitch process, mm. and you you pitched them the 19 pages. Um, what is it like? I mean, I there's like a, a lot of online documentation about you know how to pitch to Dark Horse, how to right. pitch to Image, and a couple other publishers. Um, what's it like pitching to Vault? They're they're a fairly new publisher. Um, I they've got this book, they've got Heathen, mm. they've got a handful of other books that have been kind of of pushing the way they they remind me of like the early black mask publisher where totally. black mask just kind of threw out a lot of books and aftershock <laughs> then threw out a bunch of books yeah. and now it seems like vault is trying to like 
uh, take or I guess jump into that same space of being a really cool indie publisher um, that's putting out really interesting, unique books that doesn't align with your standard image or your standard Oni or your standard Dark Horse. And I realize that saying standard to any of those publishers is kind of weird, but there is a type of book that they like to publish, I guess. Um, and, whereas with Vault and Aftershock and, and Black Mask, I think it's a little bit different. Um, so I guess what's it like trying to work or working with them? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to your point about a lot of documentation on how to pitch to this company or that company, yeah, I, I would I would take a lot of that with a grain of salt. My I've pitched to a lot of those companies and I found that the standards that they uh, that they profess are not necessarily what they what they need or what they want, especially from new creators. And so it's a challenge. Okay. It's a challenge to get your first book published. I think as a writer, that's probably the hardest uh, the hardest thing because you don't have any kind of built-in audience at all. You're a completely unknown quantity, and so it can be difficult to 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 have a, a, a company take a chance on a new voice like that. So to their credit, Vault has been amazing about that. They've gotten a really great mix of of new voices and, and a little bit more established. Don, Donnie Cates is doing a book there, uh, the sequel yeah. the sequel to, or he's doing a book called Reactor there with Dylan Burnett. Um, and so, and they, you know, they published, I think Heathen was a Kickstarter, Kickstarter book originally. Um, and so they do a lot of really great stuff. Um, I know that they're, so that they, they have a, a philosophy. First of all, they're great to work with. They're, it's two brothers. The There's Damien and then there's Adrian uh, and Damien is the publisher and, uh, Adrian is the editor in chief, and um, Tim Daniel is the head of design there, and then Nathan Gooden is the head of, of art, or, or the artistic, uh, the artistic guy. And they uh, they are they are really really wonderful to work with. It's just really really sweet people that you can absolutely just have a beer with and talk to about. And they they're all about supporting creators and giving you the freedom to do what kind of work that you want to do. I can't I cannot say enough about how good it is to work with Vault. And also from my talking to other creators, how rare it is to have a company that's like this, which is very creator oriented. They're, they are not a IP farm that is trying to steal your, or trying to get your IP just so they can sell it to Hollywood. Like they really care mm -hmm. about comics in and of itself. And they have a great, they have a, a wing for that, you know, to sell your comics to Hollywood and whatnot. Like they've got that on lock as well, but, uh, really what they're concerned about are the comics and what they're trying to build is a comics company that's kind of an equivalent to I think Tor as a if, as a book publisher which is to say okay. they really want they really want to be a place where people know to go for great science fiction and fantasy uh, comics specifically so if you're pitching to vault I recommend that you take your idea that is that is in that vein don't your slice of life stuff might have uh, a really good chance at so anywhere else really fantagraphics or uh, self mm -hmm. hero. There's a lot of great places to take your slice of life stuff, but if you're doing something that's genre and specifically science fiction and fantasy, I think Vault is uh, Vault is really doing a great job about evaluating that work and elevating it um, through you know through basically my editorial contact there is Adrian, who's the editor in chief, and uh, he is he is made he has helped uh, perfect the book. I think like he's all about the clarity of it. He hasn't in any way kind of stop me from doing any idea, any kind of crazy idea, because we do some really weird stuff going forward. I mean, we play with form a lot, uh, just in terms of paneling and narration and how all of those things intersect and how they can be manipulated, time time and stuff like that. So, uh, and I've, I've pitched a lot of really weird ideas and they have been on board for every single one of them. They're only, and Adrian has only ever made the book better with his feedback. 
So uh, I can't say enough good things about them. And I think the work that they're putting out really reflects kind of their ethos. And I think it's really only going to get better from here on out uh, as they get a bigger name. It seems like they've they've gotten a bigger name since I since I got on board. Uh, which is which was lucky for me because coincidence. Yeah. I mean, yeah. oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's all me, really. It's all me doing the background. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah. As to pitching for them specifically, what I did was I wrote a pitch and I wrote a first issue and I uh, found Vittorio Estone, who is a uh, he's an artist out of Italy. I found him on Deviant Art. And uh, we started talking and he was really interested in doing work for the European market and not so much for the American market, but he agreed to draw this, this 19 page story that I had uh, as a done in one. And I thought I could show it to uh, editors and as evidence of my work. And um, somewhere along the way, as he was making, as we were making it together, I kind of browbeat him into agreeing to do more of it and <laughs> to, to pitch it to the American market. And so I started pitching it and I got a number of rejections and then I eventually pitched it to Vault really almost right after their announcement of existence. They launched with like a slate of four books and I, uh, one of my acquaintances from, uh, from the Miller World Talent Contest was one, of, was one of the creators that was working for them. And uh, so I happened to see that early and, and I pitched them pretty early and they loved it. They, were, they got back to me, you know, literally the next day. Uh, enthusiastic and and they wanted to do the book and we signed a contract almost immediately and uh, they understood it really well they understood what I was going for and uh, they again they just didn't flinch once at some of the odd like I by the time I pitched them I had the full 19 page first story and I had we had already gotten the second issue essentially drawn by the time that they uh, by the time that they picked it up and I was a little bit worried because the number two issue is kind of daring uh, the things that we're doing with that are pretty pretty odd and and I was like well are you sure this is going to be okay and and Adrian was just like no this is great I'm like 100% there's nothing there's nothing about it that's too risky it works perfectly and so that was really heartening and uh so yeah I mean what I would argue is or what I would what I would say about pitching anywhere is the more you can produce on your own uh the better off you are because mm -hmm. it's hard given five pages maybe somebody can see where you're going but unless your art is you know out of this world, it's hard for anybody to to really agree to invest a lot of money in four a four or five issue series just based off of five pages of art. And if you, especially if you have no any kind of pedigree or background in making comics, you could just like it could all just kind of crap out after that. So right. Uh, so the more that it sucks because it's expensive or time consuming to make books that way, uh, but uh, on your own. But the more you can make, the better off you'll be, I would say, for pitching. So I guess when you're, I, to, again, let's just uh, to pivot again, because I could ask a million more questions about pitching and stuff like that. <laughs> and I, I guess the one small question I may have is, do you have the whole book planned out? Did you need to come to Vault with an ending to your series? Or did you say, hey, here's what I've got for maybe the first 10 or 12 issues. And I think this could potentially go to, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 issues, you know, if the numbers are up or how, I mean, and again, I don't know how Vault system works right. in terms of their numbering and everything, but um, if they do like a cutoff or, or whatever, but uh, yeah, I guess is, is that something you had to come with, uh, come or bring with you to your pitch or is that something they're just willing to let ride? Yeah. So uh, I think you have to, you don't have to have an end to your series at all. You should have a pretty solid idea of what, the first five issues or four issues, how, th how those are going to end. 
Definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's really all that any company is going to commit to these days outside of maybe Vertigo for, uh, especially for new creators. Like it's just the reality of the economics of it is such that you're, you should have something that's four or five issues and kind of complete within that. And so all I pitched to them were the four, the first four or five issues. And then kind of generally that, you know, I could go a lot further and, and that I kind of hinted at some of the things that would come later, but the five issues kind of ends on its own, on it, on its own kind of note. And if there is room for more, then we'll do it. But Vault doesn't really, I don't think even, even currently, I don't really know if Vault knows what I have planned for those things. I, I, uh, I maybe I, maybe I brought them up casually in one of the conversations in, in some of the scripts for issues, uh, two and three and four, because we seed stuff in there for later. But, um, but for the most part, that's really just in my own head. And I just, that's how I write is, I like to build, I, I mean, the easiest part of writing for me is the world building. And so that ends up happening a lot as I try to, as I try to go through the characters and the plotting, it just happens sure. very naturally. And so what ends up, it just ended up spreading from one issue to five to 25 or 30. Um, and so, uh, and so, and that helps me, you know, knowing those things, but without being beholden to them helps me seed stuff in the early issues that if we have time for later stuff, it will be it will feel like, oh, wow, this guy really knew what he was doing. And if we don't have time, it might have just been a cool little side thing. You know what I mean? Totally. So, but yeah, but none of the, none of the current issues, uh, you know, rely on having, keeping reading until issue 24 or anything like that. Nothing there is, nothing there is obviously going to pay off way down the line. All of it seems like it wraps up and pays off within these, I think, five issues or even within each individual issue. Yeah, that, that that definitely comes through. You know, it's it's one of those things where after reading issue one, um, I mean, I'd, I'd be disappointed if there weren't more issues, but I would also be satisfied with the issue that I read. You know, my my disappointment would not be like you were saying out of uh, a need to understand what happened next. Um, it would just be because you know I I want to read more of it. Yes, that's what I'm going for. Like that's I I, I feel like one is kind of an addiction and the other one's an, an actual enjoyment. And so I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I know that we, we use addiction kind of lightly, but I don't want people necessarily to feel like, Oh, well, I need this, you know, because I, I haven't, because there's this gaping hole in my soul right now because I only got, you know, <laughs> I only got to read the first few issues. I want people to say this made my life better, you know, and I want to read more of it because it, you know, I literally, it really literally makes me a better person to read that. That's what I'm going for. I hope I'm hoping that you'll become, I'm trying to make the world a better place essentially through these. Through these. Right. You're writing comic books to make comic books better, and that's that's something we can really get behind here on the show. Absolutely, <laughs> fixing yeah. comic books is kind yeah. of our flagship idea oh, here. Excellent. <laughs> in terms of you know writing and, and things like that, how do you go about you know taking an idea, putting it to paper? I know you said you like world building and stuff like that. Mm. Once you get past the world building, right. what's your process in terms of writing like a you know a twenty two twenty four page script, or in this case nineteen plus an extra epilogue? Right. So. Uh, I think there. I was actually discussing with, with with some other creators on Twitter recently because everybody has their own uh, method, and there's kind of more professional ways to write and less professional ways to write. And I'm 100% in the camp of less professional ways to write. <laughs> so, uh, so like a lot of people will break everything down issue by issue, and then uh, and then or arc by arc, issue by issue, page by page, you know, beat by beat, 
And that's wonderful for people who can do that. I, I salute them. I do break things down issue by issue. And then from there, it's kind of like just a, a free form mess, I would argue. So I mean, what I do is I sit down and I, I usually have already some snatches of dialogue, some conversations, some stuff that I wanted to some and definitely a theme every issue. I, I'm a theme first writer. So every issue has some kind of theme that I'm that I'm playing with, even if it's never said or or anything like that. It's it's at least I'm trying to get at these things and, and explore certain things. And so I sit down with that, and then from there I just kind of let the character take me. And sometimes, uh, usually for whatever, maybe because I've read so many comics, it kind of ends up being I write 22 or 24 pages, and uh, sometimes I write way too many, and I have to cut it down. But and with the content, and I have to do that. In fact, I almost always start with too much stuff, but it's just kind of like characters talking because I really enjoy, you know, good conversations or maybe it's a couple moments that would have been really cool, but there's just no room for it. And so I just toss it to the side. Um, and so, yeah, like every, every time I sit down to write, it's a little bit different. And uh, so there's not one formula, but what I usually do is I write in pen and paper, just kind of free form sitting down. Uh, jotting down ideas, doing conversations, what have you. And then when I feel like I've got enough stuff, I'll go uh, onto the computer and I'll uh, start to type it up and just just transcribe a lot of what I have in terms of the, the snatches of information or dialogue or ideas. And then I'll kind of put them all together into a document. And then from there, I'll shape it and build it out and turn it into an actual comic with, you know, uh, with the panel breakdowns and the and mm. dialogue and stuff that's actually readable for people. So uh, it's not, there's no, there's no really, uh, there's no system that I have per se. And kind of some days you have the spark and some days you don't, and the days that you don't, eh, you just, you try to like, just edit a little bit or do the work of like doing panel descriptions. And um, one of the things, like one of the things that I strive for, especially in the later issues you'll see is, I really like to play with the form of comics. And so I, there's, a, any storytelling is really just a, a game of parsing information. It's how you deliver the information, what order. And every, I think every story kind of allows or demands for different ways of, of delivering information. And so you can have somebody like Scott Snyder who is writing superhero comics, but he's writing them in a way that is very reminiscent of and, and utilizes the mechanisms of horror storytelling. And so, <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. When I'm writing Maxwell's or any comic, I'm thinking about, well, what's an interesting, what's the most effective and interesting way of presenting this information? How can I make it hit harder? How can I make it surprise people? And, and just by, by changing up the order, the framing of the, of the same story, you can completely change how it is taken by the audience. And so, and one of the best things about comics, I think, one of the things that really makes it a unique medium, a unique storytelling medium is that it does lend itself to formal experimentation. And, and I've always said like, everybody has a different idea of what, what other medium comics is most like. Uh, one of my friends says it's like theater. And I think Will Eisner used to say that as well. Um, and another friend says it's a design, but for me, comics is very much a kind of poetry because you're trying mm -hmm. to uh, you're trying to, to condense as much information as you can down into the smallest amount of speaking because you have limited space. And then you also, again, you have this kind of formal dimension that you get to play with. So I think I spend a lot of time thinking about how that information is delivered, and. Um, and so I, I like that's always kind of in the back of my head. And even before I start an issue, I usually have some kind of 
maybe unique or I need I need some kind of structure in my head on how the issue is going to take place. That's not just you know one scene after another. There's got to be kind of reasons for it. And uh, and yeah, from there I just kind of let the characters take me, and often they take me in weird conversations and weird directions, and I, that's kind of the the joy of it. Is just I love writing the the back and forth dialogue between two quippy or you know annoying characters. So. <laughs> Have you noticed that your writing style or approach to breaking down your dis- panel descriptions has changed with working with the artist? Has like the back and forth like changed your your technique? I mean, absolutely. And it's not just about with this artist. I mean, with Vittorio, because Vittorio is so capable, uh, he understands. He has so many different skill sets because he you know he doesn't just he doesn't just do the line work, but he also colors it, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, it has changed the way that I approach the book, primarily in, in that I feel confident in asking for kind of uh, weird formal stuff because I know that he can handle it and I know that he can make it clear and, and I know that he's gonna if he can't clarify it in the line work then he's gonna clarify it in the colors and so it's just it, I'm I'm a little bit more ambitious I think especially after the first issue because I didn't I wrote that without knowing him so after okay. the first issue we get a little bit more ambitious in terms of like the formalism in the book mm-hmm. but you know if you're if you're not tailoring your writing to the artist, then you're not really writing comics. You're writing just scripts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's it's every time you work with a different artist, you should you should be figuring out not just what they like to draw, although that that is important, and trying to do your best to put that in the issues, uh, but you should also be thinking about what they're good at, what you know, and how best to complement what they do on their own. So, I I think I said before I'm working with an artist who's kind of got like a, a Dave McKean or Bill Sienkiewicz vibe to it. And it's important yeah. to understand yeah. what those what that means in a serial uh, sequential storytelling medium and how you can best complement that. And there's certain mm-hmm. things that, you mm-hmm. know, those those guys craft images, I think, better than any anyone. But sometimes it can get a little bit abstract. And so you might want to bring it back and ground it in the narrative. All those things, yeah. you know, whatever you're doing, you have to be thinking about the artists that you're working with and you have to be taking not just what they enjoy doing, but just kind of the reality of what their style and approach means for your, mm-hmm. your overall story. So I, I try, I do my best to tailor everything that I do to the artists that I'm working with. Gotcha. Uh, well, okay. This is We're running super long, so I actually want to, unfortunately, I feel like we could probably have this conversation for another two hours, and I wish that we could. Um, so maybe we'll have to do another episode just to, just to bring you back once this book actually comes out and we can talk more about it. Absolutely. Um, but I guess for now, let's let's wrap up. Let's do some credits. Um, I guess to start, uh, Dennis, where can people find you on the internet? What's going on in your life? All that kind of stuff. Um, anything you want to plug, go for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So uh, you can find me, you can look at my website. That's www.denniscamp.com Dennis spelled with a Z as my name is uh, you can find me on Twitter I'm, I'm overly loquacious on Twitter almost all the time uh, uh, at, at mdesad like uh, the, the new god the evil new god um, and then I, I coming up I've got Maxwell's Demons coming out from Vault I've got um, I write a regular column at Panel by Panel which is a online commerce craft magazine that's uh edited by hassan osman Elhu. and then i you can see some of my work at my website and then also at the ghost city comics uh website is our award-winning comic is and other than that i got other projects but i can't really talk about them so all right <laughs> uh brian where can people find you on the internet you can find me at brian head on twitter paul how about you 
Um, I'm on Twitter at ohipauly. I'm also um, on Twitter at at Spike Pile Pod. That's my other podcast. Me and my friend Matt talking about pro wrestling. Spike Pile Driver. I'm over there as well. Cool. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Mike Rappin, as well as on Medium at, at Mike Rappin as well. Uh, there's some X-Men articles out there that I really love, and I will eventually write more. Um, you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast, uh, where we post random things at 3 in the morning that I found I find cool about comic books, as well as some interesting articles and things like that. Um, and we post polls on Friday, such as, who should just shut up? And right now, I believe um, Cyclops <laughs> is in the lead. So we'll see how that turns out this upcoming Friday. <laughs> you can also check out our Goodreads group. We have our friend Kate, who does a great job running that site. Uh, we've got threads about everyone's what everyone's reading. We pick a book of the month. And whatever comics you're reading, go over there and tell us all about them. You can also find our website, ircbpodcast.com. That's where we have the show notes. If there's something we mentioned on the show you want to find out more about, we'll link it over there. And we also post our weekly pull lists every Tuesday over on that site. We also have our pronunciation guide for comic book creators out there. Just That's in case right. you don't know how to pronounce the comic creator's name, we're trying to create a massive list of people just to make things a little less awkward um, because <laughs> that name pronunciation is very important and we're very bad at it and we're trying to fix it. <laughs> Please go ahead and rate, subscribe, tell your friends, uh, whatever podcasting platform is your cup of tea. Just uh, make sure to spread the word. You know it helps us out to have more listeners and it helps you out because then you can talk about our conversations without sounding like somebody who creeps on people on the subway <laughs> you could also email the show ircb at destroy please go ahead and reach out you know if you have questions if you have comments whatever you have to say to us we love hearing from you guys uh, infinity shred does all the music for this show they are the best band in the universe period no arguments. Fight me. At me. I dare you. Um, Xander is a wizard, and he also edits this show. He's a fantastic, beautiful human, and we all love him. Uh, finally, I want to say thank you to everyone for tuning in. Thank you to Dennis for being on this show. You are a fantastic human being. You have officially earned that merit badge. Thank you for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. You're all great. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so until next time, make sure to go check out the Kickstarter at uh, ircbpodcast.com slash ks2017. Get your sticker, get your t-shirt, so on and so forth. But until next time, we will check you later. Thank you.